Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis. Our text will come from chapter 50 and verse 20. You know, sometimes we can read through a chapter or two in the Bible within four or five, maybe even ten minutes, and we can get from the beginning of a problem to the end of the problem in just a matter of seconds, literally, not recognizing that the text we're reading covers several years or perhaps even decades, not recognizing that the person we're reading about had to experience real trials that lasted extended periods of time. Well, that was the case with the story of Joseph. Today, we're going to begin a message about Joseph his life experiences entitled From the Pit to the Penthouse. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. Here's Pastor Paul Blair. We'll begin reading in verse 17, Genesis chapter 37, verse 17. And the man said, There departed hence, and I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now therefore and let us slay him. Let us cast him into some pit. And, he, and we will say that some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him that he might rid, that he might rid him out of our hands to deliver him to his father again. It came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and they cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. This was an old abandoned cistern. And they sat down to eat bread and they lifted up their eyes. And they looked and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh and his brethren were content. Now turn over to Genesis 50, verse 20. You get there, say amen. amen. But as for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. We've preached before of how glibly we read stories in the Bible. You know, we speak of such stories as when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, and they're so familiar with us, we know how it ends, that we treat it simply as if it was a children's story, not realizing that we're talking about real people, real times, in the midst of real crisis, where at that point in time, the outcomes seemed uncertain to them. Yet they walked by faith and hope of God's rescue, but having no assurance that God would miraculously act on that particular occasion. We revel in the account of Hanani, Azariah, and Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, because we know that in the end God shows up in the furnace and rescues them through the flames 
But these were real people, persecuted for standing for God, faced with crushing persecution, not knowing whether God would intervene or not. But even so, they declared boldly as they were brought before, now picture this, brought before the emperor of the world, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And because they had served in his government, that's why they had the Babylonian names, that's why it was so important that they yield, he gave them a second chance. He said, you bow down and you worship my statue right now or I'm going to throw you in the furnace that's heated seven times hotter and you will surely die. Standing face to face with the king, they said, and I quote, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. In other words, we're not going to say something just to save our own necks. If it be so, our God whom is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image that thou hast set up. In other words, they said, our God is able. And if he chooses to deliver us from this certain death, then he may very well do that and can do that. But even if he doesn't, even if we perish in those flames, we will not compromise. We will not bend a knee and worship your golden statue. We will be faithful to Almighty God. Ladies and gentlemen, these are real people just like you and me facing real crisis and real persecution, walking only in obedience and faith and trusting God for the outcome. Joseph was a story like that. Joseph was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. At that point in time, he was the only son that was born to Rachel, not to Leah or one of the handmaidens. Obviously, he was Jacob's favorite because he was born to Rachel. And he had received preferential treatment. In fact, he had received the family colors. Colors. When you read about that coat of many colors, folks, it was a Jewish prayer shawl. When they talks about the hem of the garments with the stripes and the hems and the knots and things, that spoke of authority. That spoke of rank. And even though he was the 11th born, Jacob had chosen to give the blessing to Joseph. Consequently, those other 10 older brothers didn't hold him in high regard. They were quite jealous of him. And in fact, they hated him, the scripture says one day they were off up north they'd gone from Hebron they were past Shechem they were up in Dothan some 70 miles away from home if not farther they were caring for Jacob's flocks when his daddy sent Joseph to check on the brothers as they saw him approach they said behold this dreamer cometh what dreams were they talking about Well, Joseph had had a vision from God that one of these days his brothers would actually fall down and give obeisance to him. He'd actually had another brass vision that not only his brothers, but his mom and his father would fall down and give obeisance to him. They didn't care much for him. As they saw him approach, they jealously stripped him of his robe of authority. They beat him up and they cast him into this empty cistern. After considering killing him, they instead sold him to Midianite slave traders. Joseph had done nothing wrong. Perhaps he was a little naive in his youth as he shared from his heart about his dreams, which declared that the entire family would one day bow down to him. But he did, in fact, receive the dream. He did receive his father's blessing. He had done nothing but obey his father, even when he had told him to go and search out and find his brethren. All he had been was obedient. And he got beat up for it by his very own brothers, cast into a pit, pulled out, and sold into slavery. Folks, if we're reading a book... And we're midway through the book. Things don't look very good for our hero at this point in time. In Egypt, he was sold into Potiphar's house, the captain of the guard. Though he was faithful and honest and was 
given the uh, promotions to where he was in charge of Potiphar's own household. One day he was tested, tempted, tried by Potiphar's wife as she sought to have an immoral relationship with Joseph. But Joseph, even in the midst of that temptation, said, I will not defile the name of God. I'll not defile myself with this sin. I will honor God always. I will not sin. She was embarrassed. She was humiliated. She falsely accused him of attempting to rape her. And consequently, Joseph was again thrown into prison. We're reading a novel, beginning in chapter 1, going to the final. Things don't look very good for our hero. He would spend two years in prison, a just man in a strange country, serving time in a jail for a crime that he didn't commit. Again, things don't look very good for our hero. But of course, you know the rest of the story. Pharaoh had a dream which no man could interpret. His butler remembered serving time with Joseph and remembered how Joseph at a point earlier had been able to interpret even his own dreams. So the Pharaoh called for Joseph and Joseph was able to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh, tell him what to do, and he was elevated, promoted to the number two ruler in the empire. Now folks, we love the happy ending. We love seeing Joseph in the palace, but we don't like the pit. We love the palace, but we don't like the prison. But recognize that all those things that the devil had intended for bad, God used for good and ultimately brought about his will, much to the devil's dismay. Folks, we love the palace, but God first had to use the pit and then to prison to put Joseph in the palace. Ladies and gentlemen, we are being presented with the greatest opportunity that we've ever experienced as Christians and as Americans. God has accomplished more and can accomplish more with man in times of crisis than in times of ease. In times of ease, we pat ourselves on the back and we think we're doing pretty well on our own. We don't need it, God anymore. But in times of crisis, a man falls to his knees and recognizes his weakness and he looks to God alone for his salvation. Christianity in America has become lazy, apathetic, selfish, self-sufficient, and sinful. But I believe that God is preparing to act. In Christian history, it's been through times of crisis that God has been able to advance the gospel and bring glory to His name. Folks, it was during times of persecution in Israel. It was that persecution that drove the Jews out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world, carrying the gospel with them. It was persecution in the world that influenced pagans to accept this Christ. It was persecution by the corrupt Roman church that drove Europe into the Reformation. It was persecution by the Church of England that drove the pilgrims onto the Mayflower. It was persecution by King George that drove the patriots to Independence Hall to establish a nation in covenant with God Almighty and how God has used this nation for over 200 years to evangelize the world. Hey, no one likes the pit. No one likes the time in prison, but we all love the palace. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes God must use the pit and the prison to get us to the palace. First of all, the pit proves us. Got a little dog, a little Pomeranian named Arnold. Arnold the Pomeranian. Arnold Pomeranian. Pomeranian. Get it? We didn't get Arnold. Arnold got us. He adopted us. He showed up one day. We made the mistake of feeding him and he never left. By the way, that's how Cindy got me. (laughs) Arnold doesn't like to go outside, but when we leave, Arnold goes outside. We call him Arnold. Come on, let's go, let's go. And he comes to the back door and he didn't want to go out. Get a little doggy biscuit. We go outside. I pat him on the head, give him the doggy biscuit. And guess what? He wags his tail. Folks, when everything's going well, even a dog 
can wag his tail. But a true testimony to your faith and love and trust in Jesus Christ is being able to praise his name, praise the goodness of his name, even in the midst of trials. We're all very familiar with the story of Job, and we often speak using the expression, the suffering of Job. Job was a just man. He was an incredible wealthy man. He suffered tremendously as he lost his wealth, his family, his reputation, and his health. We all take some consolation in the fact that he was restored in the end. But one thing we overlook in the story of Job was the heavenly spectacle. Job opens in heaven, or actually in the midst of chapter 1, in heaven. As we see the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren, coming before the Lord. The Lord says, where have you been? He says, I've been walking up and down on the face of the earth seeing whom I might be able to accuse or tempt or try or devour, because that's what his purpose is. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? What a fine man he is, how he loves me with all his heart. You know what the devil's response was? Oh, Job is nothing but a mercenary. He only loves you because you've blessed him so. Look at all that he has. Look at his family. Look at his health. Look Look at his power. Look at his authority. If you were to take that away from him, he'd curse you before sundown. God said, no, he wouldn't. And by the way, as they're having this conversation, the hosts of heaven are observing, bearing witness to whether the devil's right or whether God's right. And God said, okay, have at him. I'll remove my hedge. You want to know why we pray for a hedge? Because as children of God, the devil can't touch us. We are not his property. God said, I'll remove my hedge. You can take everything he's got, but you can't touch him. It says in one day he lost his wealth, he lost his power, he lost his everything, he even lost his family. And as he was sitting there, having shaved himself as a sign of mourning, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, he didn't sin against the Lord. He said this, naked I came into the world, and naked I'll go out. Praise the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. God said to the devil, what do you think about that? The devil said, that's nothing. Any man can live without possessions. But you let me take his health, and he'll curse you before sundown. Again, all the angelic hosts are watching. All the hordes of the demons of hell are observing. Who's correct? Does Job just simply love God as a mercenary, or does he truly love him with all his heart? God said, you can do anything you want to him, but you can't kill him. He endured more suffering than any of us can possibly imagine. So much so that he even lost the support of his wife as she... His helpmate came to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Yet what was Job's response? He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He said, surely my Redeemer liveth. And God was glorified and his holy name was honored before the witness of man on this earth and also before the witness of the angelic host and the fallen angels in the spiritual realm. Ladies and gentlemen, the pressure proves us. You can't be apathetic when you're in the pit. You can't be lukewarm when you're in the pit. You can't be a fence straddler when you're in the pit. You'll either become very, very real or very, very phony when you're in the pit. I came home one weekend and brought a friend with me when I was in college. Mom used to have this tremendous fake fruit. She had a bowl of fruit sitting on the table. And it had the weight of fruit if you were to pick it up. And it had the texture and feel of fruit if you were to hold it in your hand. You literally could not tell the difference. My buddy, as you can figure, came home and grabbed a pear. 
and he put it up to his mouth to take a good bite out of it. Guess what, folks? He found out that it was a phony. Hey, sometimes you can't tell just by looks. You can't tell if it's genuine or if you can't tell if it's phony. You can't tell for sure until you take a bite out of it or until you squeeze it, put a little pressure on it and see what's inside. Hey, Satan said, hey, Job's a a mercenary. He's a phony. God said, oh no, let me prove his authenticity. Trials will prove your authenticity. God knows it already, but those trials will prove your authenticity to others and will also reinforce your authenticity to yourself. The pit proves us. Some of the greatest times in Christian history have happened in times of persecution. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you see this book being written to seven particular churches. But ladies and gentlemen, there were hundreds of churches in Asia. Why seven? Seven is the number of God's completeness. There's seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale, seven colors in a rainbow. God picked these seven churches because not only were they seven literal churches with these seven literal problems, but they were also a picture of the entirety of the church age. The second of those churches was called Smyrna. It was a church of great suffering. It came from the word myrrh, which was fragrant and had a beautiful aroma when it was crushed. It was during that period of time from 100 A.D. to about 313 A.D. that the church was crushed as Satan sought to stamp it out under the foot of his oppression. Backfired on him, though. You know why? Because under the pressure, those Christians were shown to be true, sincere lovers of Almighty God. Normally, when a pagan was fed to the lions, they would beg for mercy and scream, you take the Christians and feed them to lions facing certain death. And they would sing hymns and praises unto the Lord, knowing they were getting ready to be ushered into the very presence of Jesus Christ himself. And the pagan world couldn't figure it out. They said, what is it about you that we don't have? Oh, and what an opportunity. They say that at the time of Constantine, one in two people in the world were genuine Christians at that point in time. Oh, the pit, ladies and gentlemen, will serve to prove us. But the pit also purifies us. Folks, let me say something. Sometimes we have a tendency of over-spiritualizing things. I saw a Christian comedian years ago, a man that used to sing with the Gaithers. His name is Mark Lowry. He gave testimony about himself when he was younger, when he was in college and seminary. And he said that as a seminary student, he and some others would travel going to different communities, communities singing and then preaching said one night they were traveling, it was late at night, fell asleep at the wheel, car wrecked, all of them were severely injured. Nobody killed, praise the Lord, but severely injured. He was in the hospital for a certain length of time. As he was laying there in the hospital, as all of us would probably do, the question came over and over in his mind, God, why? God, why? God, why did you allow this to happen? And the answer was very simple, and it struck him like a lightning bolt one day. He said, because I fell asleep at the wheel. Ladies and gentlemen, there are consequences for our decisions. There are consequences for our actions. Sometimes we experience trials because of sin and bad decisions. And whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, the spiritual truth of reaping and sowing applies to us. If you sow bad seed, you'll reap bad crops. There are consequences for disobedience. There are many storms talked about in the Scripture. There are two I want to compare with you real briefly. One was after Jesus had fed the 5,000. 
He took the disciples down to the Sea of Galilee the next day and he constrained them to get on a ship. And he, being God in flesh, knew what he was doing and he sent them out into a storm in the Sea of Galilee. They were all by themselves. The first time they'd been in a crisis without Jesus' very presence, what was he doing? He was growing their faith. He was teaching them and even when they couldn't see him, he was right there with him. And in the midst of that storm, that was the night that Jesus was walking on the water right beside the boat. That was the point of the lesson. Hey, you may not be able to see me. Don't worry, I'm right there. I, I'm, you're under my watchful supervision all the time. But there's another storm that we talk about in the Scripture. It was when a certain prophet named Jonah was called by God to go and preach to the wicked capital of Syria named Nineveh. And he said, I don't want to go. I want them to all die. And he went the other direction. Boarded a boat and Joppa was heading to Tarshish. And God said, oh no you don't. And he found himself in the midst of the storm. Ladies and gentlemen, that wasn't a growth storm. That was a storm of disobedience. And God got his attention. And he ultimately repented. The scripture says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son. When we find ourselves in the pit, you take a moment and try to figure out why you're in there. Joseph needed to grow up a little bit. He knew that one day God had called him to lead, but he wasn't ready until he'd had a little seasoning. Joseph had a certain innocence about him, but perhaps a little arrogance also that needed to be shaved off, and the pit and the prison accomplished that. Ladies and gentlemen, we need a little self-examination and a little rededication to holy living. We need a little self-examination and rededication to obeying God for what he's commanded us to do and apologize to him for not doing it. Is it hot in here to you all or is it just me? I was asked Tuesday night. And by the way, those of you that are visitors, I want you to understand our church family knows this. My decision in the election had nothing to do with race. My candidate was Alan Keyes. Why? Because he's a black man? No. Because he's a solid, conservative, fundamental Christian that stands for American values. That's why. I opposed Barack Obama. Why? Because he is for, he's a, he is, he is going to, he wants to roll back, or at least I pray that he doesn't, oh God, change his heart. But he doesn't stand for the protection of the home, he doesn't stand for the protection of innocent life and every bit of progress that we have made against abortion and against homosexual marriage, he has promised to roll back, that concerns me. I don't care whether he's purple, that concerns me. But on Tuesday night, Tuesday night, I got a phone call. In fact, I got several. I got emails from a lot of people saying this. Not from our church. I got a few from our church, but from a lot of people across the state. It was this. What are we going to do? Here's my response. I said, on Wednesday morning, the sun's going to come up. And you're going to get out of bed. And you're going to make your bed. And you're going to get in the shower. And you're going to take a shower. And you're going to get dressed. And you're going to put your clothes on. And you're going to go to work. And you're going to be the best Christian you can be at work. And you're going to go to church. You're going to be the best Christian you can be at church. And you are going to continue to be about the Lord's business and occupy until he comes. Our marching orders have not changed. Luke 19 says this. I am coming again and we know that he is. And here's your command. You occupy until I come. You hold the ground. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to double down and rededicate ourselves to the things that God has called us to do. And I want you to know, we are having an impact. We had more churches actually preach election sermons prior to the election than in any other state in the country. And it's because you've got a real hard-headed whatever I am. And we've been able to stir up a whole lot of Christians in the state of Oklahoma. 
I got sent from Charlie Meadows the other day, Brother Bill's son, a web address to a, to a Democratic, an Oklahoma Democratic blog. And of course, although the liberals had great success across the country, they took a horse whipping here in the state of Oklahoma. And you'd, be, you'd find humor in reading their blogs. You know who's to blame for our ignorance? The fact that we can't read books and don't wear shoes and everything else about Oklahomans because we... But who they're blaming for it? Those backwoods, ignorant, fundamental churches and Christians. Well, praise the Lord for those backwoods, independent, fundamental Christians. We have a three-point commission we are called to be evangelists. And we are going to double down on our evangelism. Yeah. Folks, we've got great evangelism training here through Evangelism Explosion. And if you've not participated in it, it's your own fault. But don't be limited to that. The things that you need in order to be an evangelist in your school or in your workplace or in your home, or wherever you may be, is number one, you better have a testimony. Yeah. People better be able to look at you and say, that person is a Christian. You can't live like the devil and talk like the devil and act like the devil. Then all of a sudden come in one day with a track in your hand and say, Oh, Jesus loves you. They'll say, Hypocrite. We just preached that series on the Holy Spirit. Folks, Christian maturity is not how long you've been saved or whether you teach Sunday school or how many Bibles you own. Christian maturity is how much of Galatians 5.22 is seen in you. How much of the fruit of the Spirit comes out in you. How much control does the Holy Spirit have over you? You need to have a testimony that will provide you the credibility to be able to evangelize when the opportunity is right. And there are many ways of doing it. Hey, the Roman road is a wonderful gospel plan. You can take a person to John 3 and take them through Jesus' great teaching of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, evangelism explosion, uh, sharing Jesus without fear. There's a number of great programs. And we can share them with them. We've taught most of them in this church. And if you want to spend some time, we'll go one-on-one and teach it to you. But you've got to have that testimony. And then when that person comes, there will be a time in their life where they hit a crisis and they will say to you, what do you have that I don't have? You don't have to beat somebody over the head and say, I'm going to preach the Bible to you whether you want it or not. That's my job here on Sunday mornings. (laughs) There will be times because of your consistency of your testimony that the door will open and you better be able to take advantage of it when the door is open. Your own personal testimony is something you need to work on. And that's something you ought to be able to deliver in about 20 seconds or 30 seconds at most. You know, you've got a long testimony, I'm sure, but be able to share when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't have a testimony, then you need to get one. We can help you with that as soon as the service is in. You can also use tracks. We thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word, and we look forward to being with you next time as we conclude this message from the pit to the penthouse. Until next time, may God bless you. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.